Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed, and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth came praise, come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Two kinds of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. But where you have envy and selfish ambition, where you have find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. morning. I haven't been to the morning service since the afternoon service started and so it's really nice to see you like all these people that I haven't seen in ages. Uh, Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, please help us now to focus on your word, to put aside distraction and to hear what you are saying May I speak your word faithfully and not speak ideas from my own head. May I comfort those who need comforting and encourage those who need encouraging and challenge those who need challenging all through the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I begin, um, it's worth saying that I found... uh, John Dixon's book on James, extremely helpful in preparing for this. So if you want to get a better idea what James is all about, John Dixon's, uh, it's not really a commentary, it's more of just sort of a walking you through it, just sort of a brief comment on each section. Um, I found that really helpful, so check that out, John Dixon's book on James. So in the year 1666 in London, on Pudding Lane, in a small baker's shop, Just after midnight on September the 2nd, 
something went wrong. Now, we don't exactly know what happened. It probably was a spark or an ember that escaped the confines of the wood-fired oven used in bread making. But whatever happened, a fire started. And before it could be quenched, it spread. And it spread and it grew and it grew until it grew into one of the biggest and worst fires that the world has ever seen. It raged over the whole of London for five whole days, destroying over 13,000 houses and like so many churches and important buildings. Out of the 80,000 odd residents of London, there are 70,000 of them lost their homes. So much mess, so much damage, so much destruction, all because of a little spark. And James says that our tongues are just like that spark. Now, it may seem to you who've been paying attention that James is repeating himself. So um, in chapter 1, he, he gave one, one or two verses to um, keeping a tight rein on the tongue. But uh, James clearly sees this as such an important thing that he gives it a, an extended treatment here. So James says our tongue is small, but it's powerful and can cause great harm. Our speech doesn't require much effort, but it has great power to tear people down if we're not careful. Now sometimes our words might seem insignificant, but James says they can actually destroy your very life and the lives of others. So read with me again from verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who are teachers will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So if we're not careful with our speech, especially if we're speaking at a teaching capacity, then we can give people wrong ideas and develop wrong ideas ourselves, which can lead to wrong actions and ruin relationships and even destroy entire churches and communities. But controlling the tongue is really hard. James rates controlling the tongue so highly on his list of things that are hard that he says if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's perfect. Now, James is clearly holding out an ideal here. He's um, showing us where we will one day end up and our aim is to be moving toward that. Um, In other words... He's saying, if you can keep your tongue in check, well, you can keep anything in check. That's how hard it is. Now, James 
gives us several useful illustrations to show how powerful, small yet powerful and potentially destructive, the tongue can be. So first of all, he talks about uh, bits that go in the mouths of horses and then also rudders that steer ships. These are very small things, but also very powerful things that control very large things. So in the same way, the tongue is very small, but it's also very powerful, and unless we keep it in check, it can steer a person's life completely off course. Secondly, James likens the tongue to a spark, a tiny little thing that causes great destruction. Careless words can lead to destructive conversations and destructive patterns of thought, which can grow out of control and, like a bushfire, destroy our relationships. James goes on to describe the tongue as worse than a wild animal. Now, James knew about domesticating animals. He lived in a culture that had domesticated uh, lions, elephants, even deadly snakes. But he says the tongue is worse than all those. It remains undomesticated. He goes further, though. He says it cannot be domesticated by humans. It's a wild animal full of deadly poison, a vicious snake with immense potential to do great harm to others. James even goes so far as to say that the tongue is so bad it has its ultimate origin in hell itself. So hopefully you get the idea that that what we say and how we say it, they're both potentially harmful. So how we, now we know that, how do we, uh, both as individuals and as, as a body, how do we ensure that our speech remains pure and that we don't end up causing great damage by what we say? Well, in this passage, uh, of particular concern to James is that teachers don't harm anyone with what they say. So at the branch, one way we do this is to make sure our teachers have theological degrees. Our, our regular teachers, not me. I don't, I don't have one yet. Uh, um, but an, another way we do it is, um, it, so is, is to uh, make sure our growth group leaders uh, can handle God's word properly. You know, not just anyone can, can be a growth group leader. We, we, we like to make sure people can handle God's word properly. But it's not only teachers who need to keep a, a tight rein on their tongues. Even you, in a casual conversation after church, one well-meaning but perhaps misguided person can lead many astray. Even misspoken words at growth group can accidentally give people wrong ideas about God. Now, this doesn't mean we should be terrified of speaking. No, no. James just wants us to be careful. But... The problem extends beyond spiritual talk. Other types of speech can also be damaging. You know, gossiping about your neighbours or spreading rumours about your work colleagues or talking maliciously about people you go to school with. These things cause a lot of harm and they're totally out of line for a Christian. We need to be careful what we say. And be careful how we say it as well, because unintentional words or lack of clarity can lead people astray just as easily as wrong content. We need to be careful to know the power of our words. And remember, there's often great wisdom in just saying nothing. So in this first section, James has highlighted for us the potential dangers of our speech. And he goes on in the second section to emphasise that 
what we say actually demonstrates where we stand with God. So James starts by talking about duplicitous people. So read with me again from verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. If you've ever met a duplicitous person, you know how difficult it can be to understand what they're thinking or how they really feel. Because a duplicitous person talks one way to one person or group of people and then talks another way to another group of people. A duplicitous person praises God and in the very next breath curses people who are made in God's image. A duplicitous person both praises and curses God depending on the situation. But James says this shouldn't be. To speak duplicitously like this is a contradiction. It's inconsistent with your new life in Christ. James says it is as ridiculous as fresh water and salt water coming from the same spring, fig trees bearing olives, or grapevines bearing figs. Now, I'm sure you could add your own there, in a bit more in Australian context. It's like an apple tree bearing oranges, or like a banana plant bearing avocados. Right? <laughs> now, these words are a lot like Jesus' words in Matthew 12.33. So if you have a Bible, let's turn back to Matthew. That's the very first gospel, very first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12. It's good to hear those pages rustling. Make a tree good, so going from verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus is saying that what we say reveals where we truly stand with God. So it shows us what we truly are. So our speech must be consistent with our new life in Christ. There should not be two kinds of speech coming out of you. Your speech should not contradict your new identity in Christ. Now, pure speech doesn't make you a Christian. That would be silly. That would be like saying that sticking avocados on a banana plant would make it an avocado plant instead of a banana plant. But that's not what James is saying at all. But maybe another illustration. Like, maybe it's like a monkey, right? It's like a monkey dressed in a lab coat and wearing safety glasses and pretending to be a scientist. You know, he comes into my lab at Tasmanian Alkaloids and he starts mixing things together and measuring things and blowing stuff up and doing all that good stuff a scientist does. You know, the monkey behaving like that, it doesn't make him a scientist. 
Now, I'm not a monkey, but I do all that stuff. I mix things together and blow stuff up and do all that other good stuff because I'm a scientist, right? What I do shows what I truly am inside. And our actions and our words demonstrate where we stand with God. If we've been saved by God through Jesus, then our lives are going to show this more and more as we mature in the faith. People who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will have lives marked by consistent, pure speech. It's not that we never say anything wrong, but increasingly our lives should be characterised by consistent, pure speech. And this is a test for us. What do your words say about where you stand with God? And you might sing songs on Sunday or pray at growth group or teach at Sunday school, but then yell abuse at your husband or wife or tell dirty jokes at work or swear your head off when the car won't start. If your speech is full of anger or if your speech is full of bitterness, if your speech is full of complaint and empty of joy in God, then that is a far better indicator of where you stand with God than your claim to know God in Jesus. But if your speech is patient, and if it it is kind, and if it delights in the truth, and if it promotes God, if your speech is tender and loving, if your speech is generous and self-controlled, if your speech honours God and rejoices in the gospel, then that says a great deal about the fact that God is at work in your life. So, in the second section, James is saying that our speech is a barometer of where we are with God. If God has saved us, then more and more we will have lives characterised by consistently pure speech. But how is pure speech attained? Well, in the third and final section... James says that pure speech flows out of pure wisdom. So in this section, in this last section, it's clear that James views wisdom in ethical rather than merely intellectual terms. Much like the wisdom in the book of Proverbs or the wisdom of Jesus himself, wisdom is knowledge plus understanding how to live in God's way in God's world and how to relate to people in a variety of situations. But not all wisdom is equal. James here introduces two kinds of wisdom, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Read with me again from verse 13. Back in James now, if you're probably still in Matthew like I am. James chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Earthly wisdom is unspiritual and manifests as bitter envy. Earthly wisdom is full of selfish ambition. Earthly wisdom boasts about how great it is, but actually denies the truth. 
It's so bad, according to James, that it's demonic. By its very nature, this kind of wisdom leads to pride, a sin which leads to so many other sins. This wisdom is no wisdom at all. In fact, James says, if you consider yourself wise and boast about it, and in your heart harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition, you're denying the truth. You're denying God's truth. Your wisdom is a lie. It's all in your head. You may have understanding, and yet you don't understand how to live wisely. Earthly wisdom, it's all about, it's all about you. It's all about number one. It's all about us. On the other hand, heavenly wisdom, wisdom that's not just about knowing stuff, but about knowing how to use the stuff you know to serve people, wisdom from God that understands how to live God's way in God's world, wisdom that serves others rather than serving one's own ego, that kind of wisdom is a wonderful thing. So read with me again from verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. So heavenly wisdom, it manifests in good deeds done in humility. It's pure, it's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. True wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus, true wisdom is a product of knowing Jesus. If you know Jesus, then you'll have the wisdom that comes from him and your life will show it. People with heavenly wisdom are people whose knowledge prompts them to good deeds done in humility. True wisdom serves others. Now, on one level, these two different kinds of wisdom could be understood as just different attitudes to the same kind of body of knowledge. And that's true to, to a certain extent. But I think on a deeper level, they're actually fundamentally different bodies of knowledge. Because heavenly wisdom under, understands the true value of relationships. It recognises that people are more important than power. It knows that serving others for their good and for God's glory is far more important than personal advancement. But earthly wisdom, it knows nothing of those things. It doesn't get it. Now, occasionally from the outside, the two kinds of wisdom might look the same. Someone acting according to earthly wisdom may do the right thing. They may speak kindly to people. They may help others. And yet they do this not because they love the other, but because they want to use the other to climb to positions of authority. They may offer to, for example, uh, serve by leading a Bible study, but they do this mostly so that they can show off their great knowledge of the Bible. And thinking outside the church, um, an investment banker, for example, acting according to earthly wisdom, will use her knowledge to get ahead, investing in companies that turn great profits, regardless of how they treat their workers, and whose products are probably useless trash. And with She'll amass far more wealth than anyone actually needs uh, and with no regard for any harm that she may cause along the way because her primary concern is serving herself and glorifying herself. 
an employee of a business, for example, acting according to earthly wisdom, will use his knowledge to dominate or belittle his colleagues, climbing the office ladder with no regard for anyone who gets hurt along the way. In contrast, someone with great knowledge of the Christian faith acting according to heavenly wisdom will serve others in humility for their good because he loves others. He'll always be ready to answer your questions. He'll be patient and understanding and he'll never give you the impression that you're an idiot because he knows more than you. Thinking again of our investment banker friend, if instead of acting according to earthly wisdom, she acted according to heavenly wisdom, she'll still use her knowledge of the market, but she'll invest in worthwhile companies that treat their workers with dignity and that make products that people actually need and want to use. And she'll share any wealth that she gains with those in need because her primary concern is the good of others and the glory of God. In the same way, an employee acting according to heavenly wisdom will use his knowledge to serve the business and to serve his colleagues, not just seeking to climb the company ladder, but to bring value to the company and to serve others. So now, the challenge. Think about your life. Are you wise? Think about what lies on your heart. What drives you? Is it envy? Is it selfishness? Is it ambition? Does your wisdom serve your own ego? Or does your wisdom serve people in humility? Is it impartial and sincere? Is it submissive? Is it peace-loving? Is it God-glorifying? Are you wise? If you're not, then you should ask God to make you wise. And if you are, that's awesome. As we learn in chapter 1, wisdom is one of the good and perfect gifts that comes down from the Father. If you have heavenly wisdom, it's because God gave it to you. And your response should be to thank him for it. Now, before I finish, it's extremely important that I put this back in the context of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but our lives and our conduct must match our new identity. Now that we are in Christ, our speech should be pure. We control our tongues because they're powerful, and if left unchecked, can cause great harm. And pure speech flows out of pure wisdom which should be characterised by humility and good deeds, not by boasting and selfish ambition. If when you think about your life, you know that your speech is not pure and that your wisdom is mostly earthly, don't despair. The answer is not just try harder or do better or be wiser. The answer is Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Fully embrace your salvation. Jesus was a teacher of wisdom and the very embodiment of wisdom itself. To embrace Jesus is to embrace wisdom. Confess to Jesus that your speech and your wisdom are not what they should be and ask God to give you pure speech and heavenly wisdom. And if you stumble, and we all stumble, come back to Jesus, do it all over again. 
Let's pray. Loving Father, so often our lives don't match the faith we profess. Our speech is not always pure. Sometimes we live according to earthly rather than heavenly wisdom. But we do not give up. And you do not give up on us. When we come back to you and confess these things, you forgive us. Our speech is not perfect, but we are made perfect in Christ. And you continue your sanctifying work. We look forward to the day when your sanctifying work will be complete, when our speech will always be pure and our wisdom always heavenly, when we will live in perfect harmony with you and all your people forever. Amen.